Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Top Bins Talk. I'm your host, Tim Kamraj, at Footy Kuji on Twitter, as always with my co-host, Marcin Kazmarski. Say what's up to everybody, Marcin. Hey, what's up? It's Marcin, co-host of uh, Top Bins Talk, and you can always find me on Twitter at PLUventino. What's going on? And, and of course, we have with us our favorite guest ever, no shade at any other guest that we've ever had or a future guest we'll ever have on the show. <laughs> However, a dear family friend of ours at this point, Matt. What's going on, dude? Say what's up to everybody. Dude, it's a blast to be back on with you guys. I think, I think this is like the second time. The first time was obviously much different, but we were talking about mostly like international stuff, I think the last time we recorded, but it's great to be back on with you guys. And I'm sure everyone's plugging their socials so you guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Matt is the is probably one of the most informed CDI or just probably one of the most informed football fans that, uh, that I can't speak for Marcin, but that I've, I've, I've ever met. So I am always happy to have you on the show. I know the feeling's mutual with Marcin. And we're going to jump right into it. We're going to start with some takes on how the season has begun for all three of our clubs, respectively. If you're listening to the first time, you know, obviously I am a huge Roma supporter. Marcin is a huge Juve supporter. And Matt, for those who are not familiar yet with his work, is a huge Milan supporter. Uh, and when we say Milan, we, for those who are not football savvy, there's only one Milan, there's AC Milan, and the other one will not be mentioned by name uh, on this podcast. So that, uh, that being said, Matt, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Because your team is doing the best out of all of ours to start this season. You're up at uh, sec- second place right now? Is that where you're at? Yeah, there, so Milan are trailing uh, Atalanta. I think it's probably just on goals at this point. I think both teams have had perfect starts to the season. But um, yeah, Milan... Had a, a pretty light schedule coming out of the gate. You know, they uh, it was important for them to get off to a really hot start, something they typically don't do, um, you know, they, whether it be, you know, just difficult opponents, whether it be underperforming. Um, that's kind of been the theme the past couple of years. But seeing the schedule they had to start the season um, with Bologna, Crotone, and Spezia getting victories in all three, clean sheets in all three, um, some, despite having, you know, the, the absence of Ante Rebic, Ibrahimovic to COVID, and Romagnoli, your captain, not being in any of these matches. So overall, in terms of Serie A play, Milan are in a really good position heading into the international break. And then out of the international break is pretty much, in my opinion, where the season begins for them is the, uh, the Milan derby against Inter. So it's going to be a huge match to kind of see where Milan are at. We all know that Inter are a team that could be challenging for the title. So that's going to be a good uh, measuring stick as to what we can expect from Milan this season. But as far as other competitions are concerned, Milan... Um, did get the job done to get into the Europa League group stages. They had some um, relatively small matches in, in the qualifying rounds against Rio Ave. They really sweated it out in, in, the, in the penalty shootout. If you guys didn't check that out, make sure you guys do. It was absolutely ridiculous. The goalkeepers were involved in this one. And sure enough, Milan found a way, somehow, some way, to get into the Europa League group stages. It wasn't pretty. Definitely was sloppy and is definitely more synonymous of, of, the, of the Milan teams of the past. But overall, I think Milan fans are pretty, pretty, um, you know, pumped about the start to the season. Um, also, the fact that they got some really exciting names to have come in in the market. Maybe not exactly the full market they were looking for in terms of central defenders and the right wing areas. But overall, I think they are in a really good position to be in, in competition for top four. And I think that's the ultimate goal for Milan fans. 
Yeah, well, I mean, wouldn't you argue that I, I understand the point that you made a little earlier and, you know, obviously and the perspective of it of saying, well, you know, they haven't had the steepest of competition yet to start the season out. Mm -hmm. However, wouldn't you find, and again, this is just entirely opinion-based, we, we're just going off of memory here mm -hmm. as fans, but wouldn't you find essentially that the issue that Milan have had a lot in the past uh, is based on not closing out those matches and that maybe there's a little bit of a mm -hmm. in the club right now? Absolutely. I think we saw what the arrival of Ibrahimovic did um, in the second half of last season. Um, plus, we also felt that you know, Pioli was the guy for this team going forward. So when you kind of throw everything together, when you throw in the fact that, you know, the team backs the coach, the coach understands the players, there's no sort of rifts within the locker room, there's no sort of issues on that front. And then you get the players of the actual quality that you need to, to take it to the next level, um, like Raheem Diaz, like Tonali. Um, you know, getting the deal permanent for Ante Rebic, um, Diogo Dalo from Manchester United. Like, you're starting to see, like, not only some pretty positive results and a positive vibes and a feeling around this team, but also the quality of players that are you expect from a team like Milan. You know, we haven't seen that in many years. So to kind of see the results, but also the names kind of match, it's, it's a really optimistic time for Milan fans. And I think it's just one of those things where, um, you know, look, there's going to be a ton of the competition throughout the entire season. I know Marson's going to touch on it. You're going to touch on it, um, Tim, in terms of, you know, you know, how deep the field is for top four and how competitive it is and the most com competitive it's been in years. But it's just one game at a time. That's the approach they got to take. And at the end of the season, you hope that you're, they're in position where they want to be in terms of getting back into the Champions League. Yeah, you know, consistency is going to be key for them, definitely, this season. I think that's mm -hmm. definitely a good a good take on it. So, Marcin, Juve, as always, you are our focal point when it comes to Juve conversation for good reason, uh, because I don't know anybody else that has it tattooed on their body at this point in my life. But, you know, I'm young, so you never know. Uh, so why don't you take it? Why don't you take it from here? There's uh, actually there's two Juve tattoos on my body. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. Sorry. It's all right. And there will be a full Juve sleeve coming starting next month. So oh, I'm very soddy. See what happened there? Yeah. Bad jokes are full and, and then bad <laughs> jokes to start off the epi. All right, but back to the topic at hand. Yeah, Juve started the season. Obviously, the whole conversation this summer was going to be Andrea Pirlo and him kind of transitioning into becoming a head coach and a head coach that didn't even have his coaching credentials when he accepted the job of Juve. So that's kind of how the, the whole summer started um but i think uve overall before the even season started they did a really good job in the transfer market kind of replacing these um not over the hill players but players in their mid to like early 30s that were on high wages and they were able to replace them with a lot of young talent uh for example replacing matuidi with mckinney uh replacing now with douglas costa with chiesa which i mean i have my own opinions on that move but still you're replacing a 30 year old with a 22 year old so positivity there um, and just everybody, all the other moves that they made throughout the entire window is just bringing in youth, bringing like, for example, Artur for, for Pjanic, uh, Kulisevsky uh, finally joined the team. So just a lot of youth movement coming into the team. And I feel like this is what um, was needed. You needed that youth um, kind of injection into the start of the especially with a new coach like Pirlo. Uh, I mean, we saw positive results. I was really like um, blown away by it. like game one, Sampdoria. You saw one, two passes. You saw the ideas and the uh, thought process that Pirlo had into the game. Obviously, a second match, tough tough game against Roma, 2-2 two, uh, two, two draw. Um, red card to Juve from Rabiot in the, in the second half, which kind of ruined the match for me at that point, which kind of killed that game off. So Juve kind of played more or less for the draw once Ronaldo leveled. 
Um, but yeah, moving moving forward, I think they have a pretty easy schedule coming back. They play Crotone, they play uh, uh, Dinamo Kiev in the first round of the Champions League. Then they have Verona. Uh, obviously, you have a match against Barca, but and then Spezia. So you have you have a pretty easier uh, schedule in, in Serie A coming back from international break. Um, and also uh, Dinamo not being the highest level of European competition. Um, so I think you may have a pretty good opportunity going into this year to hopefully get the 10th consecutive Scudetto. I mean, that's the game plan. I mean, that's that's always the goal. I feel like the Champions League, even though it's it's a new coach and a new system, is always going to be the goal now, especially with Ronaldo having only this year and next year left on his contract. Um, so I think it's it's UCL or bust also every year. I think I feel like that's most fans' kind of expectation at this point. Like you have we brought in Cristiano to get that Champions League, and that's what they're gunning for. Um, but yeah, so far with what I've seen from the season, it's been it's been positive. I mean, five goals through the first two matches. Uh, we'll see what happens with the the result from match day three versus Napoli in that whole situation, which we'll talk about later. Um, but I'm seeing the the things that I wanted to see. Saudi last year didn't really progress the side you didn't see his style kind of really affected onto the team over the course of the season and I think already with Pirlo with two matches in hand you you see the thought process you see the ideas so I'm really uh, I'm excited to see uh, rookie coach Andrea Pirlo for the rest of the campaign okay so a little out of the ordinary but I'm going to take a UVic question I'm going to throw it Matt's way just from you know just for just for the giggles of it um Matt so Pirlo obviously Milan he's an Italian legend in general I mean let's just face it but Obviously, he had his time at Milan. Are you more concerned as a fan of Milan to see Pirlo at the helm than you are to see Sadi at the helm of Juve? Do you think that takes them up a level as a team? Is that how you find them, or do you think it's just kind of early days, just you know, a little hard to tell right now with him being so young as a manager? Well, it is obviously early days. Um, I think at the time of the appointment for, for Pirlo, I was probably a little bit more optimistic than I think most Juventus fans were for the simple reason is that I think it's difficult to appoint a coach who has no experience going from what Juve had with Allegri, who had tons of experience. He got two Champions League final appearances. He won tons of cups. He won tons of Scudetti. So he had everything behind him. And then you go to a guy like Sarri, who, you know, yes, he had the Europa League title with Chelsea, but then, you know, last year was his first actual main domestic silverware and then you go to a coach who hasn't has no experience so you feel as a Juventus fan you're like are we going backwards with the players that are really built to win now with this sort of again Bonucci Chiellini like you, you spent the money on Delict you have Buffon still there as a backup you know uh, Wojciech Szczesny still a really top uh, uh, elite goalkeeper so you're looking you're like is he the guy why wasn't a Pochettino why wasn't it some other name that has a little more of, of a history behind him a track record to judge off but I was thinking, you know what, look, Pirlo, he's a guy that commands respect. He's, he's won um, at Milan. He's won at Juve. He's really decorated in terms of um, what he's accomplished as a player. So I think ultimately he knows the players. He knows what it takes to win. He's going to command that respect coming into the locker room on day one. And then it's just a matter of him instilling his sort of uh, philosophy, his, his, his approach, his style of football that he wants to. And I think it's going to take time. But we saw what happened with Sarri. That took tons of time. And it, it quite frankly, never really materialized to what I think Juventus fans wanted. So when I look at the makeup of this squad now, I think, you know, as, as Marston, you know, recapped quite well the market and just their overall feeling around Juve heading into the season, you know, they got younger. You know, they got Arthur. They, the midfield bump meant another year under his belt where he's going to be, you know, pretty much handed the keys to the midfield, if you ask me. Ramsey has to stay healthy. Rabio come, he came together late last season. So you look at all the pieces, you're like, all right, Juve are, are built. It's just a matter of, 
can Pirlo ease along with his with what he wants to do and have the players reciprocate that. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned two of their main young defenders um, in De Ligt and Demerol. So when you throw those two players into the equation, you're like, Juve, are, they're, they're strong. They're, they're, they're ready to go. I think the one area maybe that, you know, Juve fans are a little bit concerned of is in the fullback positions because I think that was a focus. They didn't quite address it. Uh, they, they loaned out to Shio. They still have Alexandro. Juan Cuadrado is playing, probably going to be playing quite a bit of minutes, starting minutes for them. So we'll have to wait and see. But I think if you're Juventus, Juventus fan at this moment in time, I think you're understanding and more accepting of maybe the bumps and bruises it'll take for Pirlo to do what he's got to do. But at the end of the day, you kind of feel and get the sense that from day one, he will be respected. Whereas I think with Sari, there was already a little bit of a, a, a disbelief, not releasing eye to eye from a lot of the players to what he wanted to do. Yeah, I, I feel like just to piggyback off that point, I think you you hear that and you see that from the interviews that the players have just had over the mm-hmm. last weeks. Like Chiellini, for example, saying that Sadi and like the the team just didn't gel with his system. You have Ronaldo saying that they're having so much more fun in training now, like with Pirlo at the helm. So you see these little like interviews that the players are doing, and and, and it it clearly shows you that there was definitely a, a discon- disconnect with Sadi last year at the helm, and that Pirlo is kind of like rejuvenating the squad with like a, a breath of fresh air, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, you know, I I would actually just point out when it comes to Ronaldo. Uh, specifically, I actually give a lot of credit to Ronaldo. Obviously, there are a lot of instances where you know he does come off a little more arrogant than most players. But you know, when you're when you're a world talent, when you're you know generational talent, doesn't really even describe what you've done in your career. You're gonna come off like that a, a couple times. But for that whole scenario, where I don't know if you guys remember, where he was having those knee issues, and mm-hmm. Sadi was saying that he wasn't fit to play, and then he would go to Portugal, and Portugal would play him. And the media kept trying to get him to, you know, go against his coach almost. It almost came off that they were trying to get him to slip up and say, okay, well, I'm fit to play and my coach doesn't know what he's saying. I, you know, I got to give credit where it's due when it comes to it. He really backed his manager at that capacity. So I don't know if it's something that really doesn't get addressed a lot because obviously, you know, the the flashiness and the goals are always the conversation when it comes to Ronaldo. But I tip my hat to him. I thought he was really professional throughout that entire you know, that entire saga, I guess I would say, when it came to that. Um, so, yeah, just just actually a little point to, to piggyback on the piggyback, if you will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're all about the piggyback cards here. Um, so last is me, right? So how do I feel about Roma, I guess, would be uh, would be the way. Solve the questions. What was that? That you're asking yourself the questions today? I do that regularly outside of the podcast. So I don't see the problem while I'm in the podcast. I talk to myself all the time. I encourage it. I'm my favorite person to talk to. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, when it comes to Roma, when it comes to Roma, first of all, there's a change of ownership during an, an international pandemic crisis. There was a change of ownership and management. Uh, there was structural changes that needed to be done at the club. There was a lot going on before the season began and very close to where the season began. So I really, you know, and then the Juve link happened uh, with Zeko. I wasn't really overly optimistic because I knew where we stood financially. And unlike a lot of other Roma supporters who were saying, you know, we want you, we want Zeko out. We want this big player in. And we, it's just kind of realistically speaking, I understand, you know, the initial getting 17 mil for somebody who's in their, you know, mid thirties is always nice. But at the same time, the quality of player that he is, 
and I'm saying this right now because I know there are a couple of Romanisti that listen to this podcast, what we take for granted more often than not, and you can see it in the first game of the season with Roma, is that he may not be taking the opportunities like he used to. He may be a little rusty here and there. But at the same time, the quality of player is and the way that he positions himself on the pitch, not even from a, a technical perspective, but just from a, a, a random person watching the game, you could really appreciate the quality of player that he is. And I think it's just a little naive to say that you could replace him instantaneously with somebody else. Because even during that Juve game, he missed a couple sitters and there's no real excuse for missing those chances. However, you know, if, if he's your scapegoat, once he leaves and the next guy starts missing, who are you, who are you going to turn to? Who are you going to blame for that? You know, realistically speaking, I just feel that the team is in an okay place right now for where they were. My only gripe when it comes to Roma right now is that there seems to be a mentality issue. And you saw it during that 2-2 draw with Juve where... I don't know where it's coming from, if it's coming from the players, from the coaching, but something happened along the line where as soon as Rabio got that card, we jumped early and we were trying to get those chances tucked away and put in. And we just we just couldn't seem to find the back of the net. And once that happened and the equalizer happened, everybody's head dropped and it just kind of seemed like even though we were a man up, that the mentality of it was, oh, here we go. You know, we're going to drop the points and it's not going to work out for us and as that's just the one thing that if Fonseca could fix that, and and you know I know he's had one season already under his belt at the club, and I think they're playing better football than they were, you know, before he was in charge. I I have no quarrel saying that. Um, I just I just feel that's really what they need to address is the mentality at the club and not bringing more players in on higher wages. I think I think the a big a big, uh, I guess uh, way they they address that, and I think that'll really help them. Um, is is finding a way to finding a way to get Chris Smalling on, on a permanent deal. I think the experience he had, the sort of um, the the aura around him, I think immediately, like not only just the performances he put in, named Smaldini and just really kind of <laughs> you gave Manchester United fans this sort of feeling like how is Smalling kind of reinventing himself in Italy? Like why are Roma fans like raving about Chris Smalling when we were trying to usher this guy out the door after nine ten years? Right. So the fact that they were able to Get Smalling in there, I think, is going to be a guiding presence uh, along with Jekko. Um, the fact that they couldn't get El Sharabi in was a little bit of a bummer to me. Um, and you can see it on you know on Instagram where El Sharabi used he was bummed not to make that move because I think he would have been the type of player that can really help along with Jekko, along with Lorenzo Pellegrini, um, you know, kind of help like ease along in sort of those delicate phases of the season where maybe Roma's struggling and they need some sort of guiding presence. But overall, I thought that in general, they have some of the players intact to kind of pick up that slack, to kind of be that guiding presence. You know, Pedro is another one, right? He was at Chelsea. He's at Barcelona. He's got the experience. So you look up and down the, the roster and you're like, OK, like they have players. Yes, obviously, they could probably could have done a couple extra things to help you know, ease those sorts of concerns that Romanisti may have while they see you know, Lazio doing really well and in the Champions League and they see the competition in the field for top four uh, expanding. But at the same time, I think the, the biggest thing for um, Roma fans and Roma in general at this time is just get stay healthy. I mean, last year, they it never felt like they were quite healthy for an entire part of the season. And you started to see everything kind of fall apart in the second half post-COVID. And that really kind of did them in. So health is going to be a big key for them. But I, I agree with you. I think the mentality thing, they were definitely lacking. And if they would have sold Jekko, I it, was, it would be hard for me to see where they would replace that sort of character 
that the squad still lacks. Yeah, and that was actually something that, and I know I just, I just, you know, threw my two cents in on that one, but you know, when Zeko was leaving, Zeko is is the captain effectively, right? I mean, Florenzi is is out the door at this point, right. much to my dismay, he's out the door. But you know, when it comes down to it, he's the captain, and when you lost Kolarov as well, who I thought was a real leader in the dressing room as well, him too. You know. Everybody on Twitter is, who's going to be our captain? Who's going to be our captain? Well, if you have to ask who's the captain going to be, is it really that one player's fault then if the you know if the team's not performing? So, yeah. And actually, just a quick note on Pedro. He's actually been, I would say, the most pleasant surprise for me this season because mm-hmm. I knew, don't get me wrong, I knew, I mean, the guy was a world beater. I was a little concerned, you know, getting in here saying, all right, well, he's 33. He's, he might be looking for a couple years here and there, but... You know, he's come in with a real energetic yeah. you know, display about him. He's coming in. He's always running. He's tracking back. He's dropping in the middle to receive the ball. He's doing everything that you can ask a player to do. So, you know, tipping my hat to you, sir, uh, Pedro, if you ever decide to listen to Top Ends talk, you at least have a fan on here. Uh, now, as we transition away from that quick opening that I peppered in here that ended up taking about 20 minutes, um, if we move away from that, we can go into a topic in youngsters, okay? And youngsters is going to be one of the key subjects today. And the reason it's going to be a key subject is there have been multiple English talents that are leaving, uh, you know, their home country to seek opportunities abroad. I mean, obviously, the biggest, most notable name being Jaden Sancho. Uh, but, you know, I think that's uh, Billingham as well, who went to Dortmund. You look at several other players who went to Holland. And the point being is there's no real opportunities for them domestically, and they're seeking opportunities elsewhere. It does seem like that's going to hurt the league in the long run. Obviously, Premier League has bonkers amount of money when it comes to the TV rights and, you know, et cetera. But the other reason we had Matt on the show is really because Matt is very in tune with the Italian setup, not just Milan. You know, and there has been a little bit of a renaissance as far as Italian football goes in trusting younger players, which is very out of, uh, I guess I would say out of ordinary. It's a very modern approach for them. So, Matt, just your take on the idea of, A, youth leaving the league and how that can have some long-term detriment, and also what you see in Italy, maybe Italian football giving more opportunities than most other leagues at this point. Sure. So um, I think for the longest time, you know, you look at what the, the the Italian national team was a sort of reflection on what the league was, right, for the longest time. And I think there was that period post, I would say, maybe the last decade, 2010 and, and beyond, right? I think there was, you know, 2006 was the, obviously the, the, the summit, you know, you're, you're, you're champions of, of, of world football. And then you saw the sort of carryover to like, all right, what does the next era look like? What's the next generation look like? And you never quite saw that sort of, like, okay, like I can see like this thing being prolonged, this thing keeping, keeping it going. And for me, I think it really started, um, you know, and this kind of goes hand in hand with Serie A and the kind of the movement we're seeing, um, to, to your point with the Renaissance there, Tim, um, is that the, the Jean-Pierre Ventura didn't really integrate a lot of the youth that was coming up, right? There was so much young talent, but it was like, why isn't this guy utilizing certain players? And Mancini comes in there and gives this sort of fresh life to guys like Barella with, with significant minutes. Stefano Sensi, uh, Nicola Zagnolo, Chiesa. Like, you look at all the players and you're like, the talent's there. It's just a matter of opportunity. And that was the, the biggest thing, that, the thing I praise Mancini at every turn, right, is the fact that he's able to 
yes, understand when players are deserving of spots, you know, you know, sticking with Chiellini, sticking with Bonucci, sticking with certain veterans in certain areas that are, you know, like even Verratti is kind of like a veteran at this point because he's, you know, racked up plenty of caps and guys like Jorginho and so on and so forth. But, you know, giving like significant minutes to guys like Tonali, even if he's, you know, has only one top like campaign under his belt. Um, those things are just are, are really huge for the national team, but it also goes hand in hand when those players are making the next step to play at big clubs, right? You know, the fact that Mio Chiesa, Marcin, goes from Fiorentino, a team that's, you know, obviously not competing for anything, but now he's immediately thrusted into a team where they're a favorites to win the league for the 10th straight year. They're a team that's one of the favorites to win the Champions League. Like, that's going to help him raise his game in terms of his not only ability, but it's also his mentality. Like, okay, now I need to have this champion-like mentality grasping for things to get motivated about. It's, I'm playing for Juve. I have to bring my best because I look around and I see there's champions everywhere. And I see the same thing for guys like like Tonali, you know, for Barella, for Sensi, who are part of significant, important projects in some of the biggest clubs in Italy. So when you kind of throw all these these things together, it's it's no surprise, it's no coincidence that you know, Italy has all this sort of excitement and buzz around heading into Euro. But then there's also, you know, six to seven strong teams in Italy that have big names, but they also have top young Italian prospects. And I think that's the key here is that I think we can focus so much on, you know, what young talents go elsewhere around the, around world football, like Sancho and Bellingham. But at the end of the day, I think for the, for the health of the, the national team and for the health of Calcio, it's important if their domestic players are able to, thrive domestically. I don't want to see guys like Chiesa go abroad. I don't want to see Tonali go abroad. I don't want to see Barella go abroad. I want them staying here, comfortable in their best form, and being able to replicate that and make that carry over to the national team. You guys may have a different opinion on it, and I know some people are going to say, well, is Serie A the, the, the summit? Is it the standard that you want players to be playing for? And my argument is, look, we, we know the track record of certain Italians playing abroad, right? I think we saw with Immobile. He had the great years with Torino. He went to Borussia Dortmund. He went to Sevilla. He struggled. What do he do? He comes back to Torino, plays really well. Lazio by him. And now he's, what, was tied with goals in the single season with Iguain last year. Like, there's something about playing at home that helps you just kind of, you know, have that balance, have that sort of confidence to play and to ultimately put your best foot forward and produce like, you know, the national team will need them to produce. Yeah, okay. You know, I I think that's a great take on the situation. Marcin, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, everything that Matt kind of says, I, I kind of agree with. I mean, you have, um, especially when it comes to the Italian league and, and Italian football in general, you have all all those names that he mentioned: Chiesa, Tonali, Barella, Sensi, um, all the all these guys. And you want like like to your point, I, I think every country wants to have those top tier talents stay and play within their country you know like for example like marco verratti is a perfect case everybody always like as soon as he left uh, pescara and he originally juve really wanted him but he ended up going to psg for so long and everybody's like oh he should have always went back to and played in in, in italian football and should have played there you know like that that was always the case so i feel like it's it's always the case whenever these like european clubs uh like european players leave their home country and go play in another league they're like at some point somebody's always going to make that argument like oh you should have stayed and and played in england or in france or in italy or wherever you're from um but yeah like but now you're seeing that trend of like that in italy but you're seeing that trend a little bit reversed in other leagues for example uh and that's kind of like what the topic you kind of started off with was in england england's kind of seeing the reverse trend they used to be 
um, more giving to the youth system in, in that mm -hmm. sense, especially like if you remember the like the Man United days where you had like Beckham coming up and that whole squad of, of players. Um, they were a lot more giving to the youth system, but now you're seeing players like Sancho uh, and like these other players that we've named um, leaving England because they're not seeing those first team opportunities and not seeing that play time. So it's it's really not strange, but it's it's different from the norm, kind of like you mentioned before, that Italy is now the, the kind of like a new league in the sense that they're giving youth a lot more of an opportunity. And England, who's a place that, on the flip side, was always giving those youngsters and more younger players an opportunity to play. Now they're not doing the same. Now they're seeing more youth products um, leaving the English Premier League and trying to try their trade elsewhere because they, they know they're going to get more minutes in, in, let's say, in France or in Germany or in Italy. Because um, those, those leagues, I think, are right now, for me, the top three in terms of developing talent. Uh, and I feel like that's especially true in uh, France and in Germany. I feel like those two leagues, they just dole out like 16, 17-year-olds every other week in the starting lineup. Um, I feel like, I mean, for example, like Reyna at BVB, he's getting tons of minutes and he's a 17-year-old kid, you know? Like, that doesn't really happen too often. Like, same thing with Sancho. Like, at 17 and 18, he was pulling up 30 goal-slash-assist campaigns. Like, he, he knew his ability, he knew his talent, and he's like, hey, if you're not going to give me the opportunity to play... I know I can do it elsewhere, you know, and I feel like that's a great thing that these youngsters have that kind of like, not like arrogance, but like they're confident. They're like, hey, I know my abilities. I know I'm good. And if you're not going to give me the opportunity, I'm going to go shine elsewhere. And I feel like like the biggest example that recently has been like not not besides Sancho has been like Paul Pogba. Man United were like, hey, we're, we're not going to give you starting minutes. And then he he shows up at Juve and just balls out for, for four years. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm glad these youngsters have that kind of like mentality. They're like, hey, we know we can do it and we'll go wherever the the playtime is. So I'm all for it right now. Can I can I pitch you guys something? Can I pitch you guys this idea? Is the fact that the Premier League is moving away from giving youth players opportunity kind of a double edged sword effect of the fact that they're getting so much media and money exposure? If you're the scrap the owner of a club if you're the manager and you're being offered you know to you know you just lost a player i will go spurs for example and this isn't a specific uh instance that you know this is like for like but let's take this in the way of they lose christian erickson and the next summer they're assessing their squad and they say okay well we have ryan sessignon front that we signed from fulham who's a super talented young teenager uh, who we saw doing very well so you can start him, or you can give him a, an ample amount of minutes, or uh, you can go the route of pulling a megastar like Gareth Bale back, who, even though he is a megastar, he does have his fitness questions, and he does have a couple of question marks about him. You know, is it is it a case of, if I'm the Tottenham manager, I have pressure on me to make sure that I'm succeeding uh, in this due to the fact that if I, if I don't finish where I need to finish, I'm going to be hit significantly harder financially due to the amount of money involved in the English game versus the other leagues at this point. You know, is that is there an argument? Is there a space in there for, you know, Premier League managers to maybe be, yeah, playing on the safe side? Because, you know, what was it the only a couple of years ago that the 18th when we'll never let this go, that the 18th place team in England got the same amount of TV revenue as Juve finishing first a couple of years ago. And that was nuts. Right. So we use examples like that. And is there maybe grounds to stand on that say, okay, well, maybe it's not intentional per se, 
that these youth players aren't getting opportunities in England, maybe it's a result of that double-edged sword that, yeah, you're bringing in more income as an English club, uh, but you're also subject to more pressure due to that. You know, so that I guess I would throw that your guys' way. I think it's only fair that I go with Marson first because I would keep going with Matt first because he's our he's our esteemed guest. He's our family friend that we keep coming on. Yeah, so um, to answer your question, I feel like it, it's, it's yes and no in the sense that when you're at a large, quote-unquote, larger, larger club, for example, you mentioned Tottenham in specific, and Mourinho had a task was to, to win trophies at Tottenham and to come in and change the culture and change the mentality. And he knows he needs to get certain results, and he knows that those results include finishing top four. So, and I mean, he's he's coached Gareth Bale in the past. So I feel like in that instance specifically, I feel like Mourinho, who's who's done and dusted, he's won everything there is. He's one of the most decorated coaches of all time. Um, he's going to go with that veteran presence. I feel like at smaller clubs, and not, not to say smaller in stature, but mid-table to bottom half clubs, I feel like you are you're allowed more leeway because you're not expected to finish in those like top six European cup positions, you know? So I feel like you have more of a leeway to be like, oh, like, yeah, here, 18, 19-year-old kid, like, go out there and see what you can do, you know? Yeah, well, but just not to cut you off, but at the same time, like, you know, just kind of speaking to that, you know, Milan's a big club, and Milan just went ahead and signed Tonali, and they're, and they're going to be giving Tonali chances, you know, left and right, presumably, in the near, you know, if they're not ready, to be honest, I haven't caught a lot of their games, but... You know, they they bought him, and that's a, I mean, that's a calculated risk considering he's one of Italian football's best talents. But like, you know, that's that's kind of the thing though is like, you know, Milan are comparable, if not better, to Spurs as far as you know their setup in their league. So it's like, how come we talk about Milan that way, but we talk about Spurs kind of the other way? You know what I mean? I think no. it's more of a, I think it's more of a, more of a, a competitive uh, makeup of the league, right? I think it's it's tough to compare league to league, right? Because I think you're going to look at a club like Tottenham and you're like, well, I mean, if I have the opportunity to spend, you know, X amount every year, no matter where I finish, whereas with Milan, whereas with some of these other clubs, they kind of have to like tiptoe and be a little bit more cautious of financial fair play and where they put their resources. I think it's, it kind of, it almost in, in a, in a strange way, having, don't not having this sort of the, the the ability to back up the Brinks truck like a lot of these Premier League clubs do to get players in, um, it almost incentivizes a lot of these teams to, you know, trust in the young players. I mean, look at Milan, for instance, right? I think, you know, we, we could focus on, with the exception of maybe Juve and maybe a couple others, there's not many teams that can go out there and spend on that sort of level as a Premier League club. Like we saw with Juve, they're able, capable of doing and getting a guy like Ronaldo. No other club in Serie A are... are built to get a player of that stature or that price. So when you look at Milan, it's like, okay, well, here, at 16, Donnarumma's coming up. They're starting Calabria in meaningful games. They, you know, they're bringing along even Coutrone, who's not on the team anymore. Like, they're, it's almost like they're incentivizing using and utilizing the academy. Same thing with Atalanta. Like, I think Atalanta are such a great sort of measuring stick for a club that trusts in their process, trusts in their own. And, you know, it's not necessarily always young Italians with Atalanta, right? I think they're, they scout so well in some of these regions of the world that are maybe untapped. So it's getting a little bit more creative on that side. But I think if you're a Premier League club, if, if put it this way, the, the best thing to say is this. If Milan were in the Premier League and Milan had the opportunity to spend like a Manchester United can or a Liverpool can on players, I'd be over the moon. I'd be like, we can get any player we want. But at the same time, it's like, that's not always the cure for everything. And with that, 
comes mounted at heavier and mount, more mounted pressure. So it's it's kind of a, 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 a you know a kind of a difficult thing to compare. I understand what you're saying, but there's very few clubs in England versus other leagues because it's so different and unique in its financial capacity that we don't see some of these players. Like perfect example was even Brahim Diaz. Like he was at Manchester City. He barely played. He goes to Real Madrid and he's a talented individual. Now he's at Milan on loan. You look at Eric Garcia, who's at Manchester City, and he's obviously a talented individual. Barcelona wanted him, but he can't even get minutes at City, right? He can't get substantial minutes. And if he goes somewhere else, I guarantee you, like Sancho. Sancho was a Manchester City prospect. He goes to Dortmund as a star as a teenager immediately. So there's, those players aren't the only cases of not being maybe um, as talented at that level. But I don't think you see too many times with the exception of maybe a couple of clubs you mentioned, uh, you're Fulham with Sessegnon, getting the opportunity at like 17, 18 to play. Where are the 17, 18-year-olds starting and playing ample minutes at City? Liverpool. Like, they just loaned out Reen Brewster, or they sold uh, Brewster, right? So they don't even get the opportunity to players even when maybe they're built to give opportunity because they have the luxury of being ha- able to have the stars to back them up, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, but so my point to that, though, is that, you know, Marcin, just to kind of bring you back in on this one, right? So... Let's go for an example here where Juve is specifically a club where they're financially able to, you know, to pull in whoever really they need for the most part, right? Like there aren't a lot of players that, that fall out of, their, out of their range. You know, case in point here, Juve has the most pressure out of, you know, like it or not, Juve has the most pressure out of any Italian team, right? To, sure. to, to reach your 10th league title in a row. Most pressure, right? So if you, if you look at the perspective and yes, Juve bought you know, several younger players in right now. But if for two or three seasons, Juve never bought a player over the age of 25 and strictly bought on talent, you know, would you be satisfied with that, right? Like, you know, if your team had the ability to spend the money, it wasn't putting you in the red. Like if you never signed Ronaldo and instead you signed some like young 20-year-old who hadn't established himself yet, or you gave a youth player an opportunity instead, would you be confident that you can have the same level of team at that capacity? I feel like you need to have a mixture of both that and that's what the benefit is of ha- of being one of these like a larger European clubs is is you can mix kind of you can have these these veterans that you've paid a ton of money for, but you can mix in these youngsters and kind of like what Milan's doing they they went out and they bought it brought in big talent. They brought in Ibra, who was going to be the focal point of this offense, and then surrounded him with guys that were experienced and then brought in the youth alongside of him. And that's what I feel like is the perfect combination of building a proper team. You have your 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 star, your your headline players like at Juve, like Ronaldo and Dybala, for example, and, and Bonucci and Chiellini in defense. And then you slowly integrate those those youngsters and those younger players in around them to build for the future. So then once those players kind of like either retire or get sold or whatever happens, you have those replacements kind of like right in line, right behind them. Like, for example, with, with Demerol and, and Delict, not to say Delict's the replacement, but at some point Delict and Demerol are going to take Bonucci and Chiellini's place in the lineup full time. And that's kind of what is the, be- like I mentioned, that's the benefit of being one of these bigger clubs that has that that surplus of money. You can build this, this you can build this awesome behemoth of a club, have those big name players that are older or more experienced, but you can give these, um, not not like live through the growing pains of these youngsters, but you have the talent and the capabilities around them that those errors that they make 
aren't as noticeable on the pitch as if you were just fielding a team full of youngsters, if that makes sense. Okay, but like at okay, and but take from this as well. Okay, let's say Juve had the same amount of pressure that they have right now, but instead of maybe like, you know, instead of maybe we'll say five other teams in the league that uh, can trouble Juve, imagine there were 10 other teams. Imagine the league was even more so, you know, imagine you had, yeah, look at Everton signing Hannes and Allen. You know, that was huge. And they're relatively a mid-table club, right? You know, if you take that angle and now all of a sudden the league gets super crazy and competitive as in like anybody could beat anybody at this point, um, you know, is that still the case? Like, do you think you would still be comfortable as a fan if you didn't have a squad full of seniors the way that Man City does. You know, Man City runs, and, you know, I mean, I know Liverpool have just come to prominence as well, but, you know, Man City runs their league yeah, pretty well aside from Liverpool, to be fair. But the point that I'm making is, you know, a lot of these teams have stacked with veterans and, you know, players for the now. Would you still feel comfortable having the youth players at Juve knowing that, you know, any given mistake from them could cost you guys the league as opposed to, you know, right now when it's a, I mean, it was close last season, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I don't think it's going to be as close with Pirlo, uh, you know. So that's, I guess that's my question to the situation is, if the league was more competitive, would you still feel that way about the young players or would you seek to have the club be more consistent and maybe get the young players less opportunities? No, I mean, like I said, like I, I would want the, the young players to have those opportunities. And, and it, at, the, at the end of the day, it's if that young player has the talent, if he's better than somebody that's a veteran, like he's he's gonna play. That's that's just my opinion. If if yeah, but what if he's not? You know, like what if he like not yet? Yeah. You know? Then he shouldn't be playing. I mean, you. I feel like in my that's opinion, right. you as a football coach, you start who's the best, and if you're if, at that position, you know, whatever it is, and you field your best eleven. And if you can't feel like if that 17, 18 year old isn't technically in your best eleven, then he you'll either get minutes into those like. Um, not m- less important, but those smaller team games or those games that aren't as meaningful. And that's like that's how you build up that experience over time. And then you can kind of make a better assessment over the course of the season. Is this player capable enough to reach those those levels of being a first team player? Yeah, I don't know, man. I just don't know. So I think that's going to have to be one that's debated for uh, for a longer, longer period of time. But uh, if we carry on here. Actually, just a point that Marcin made, this is one of the talking points we want to transition to. Speaking of impacts, COVID's making an impact on football right now. You know, as far as games, I mean, we've been talking about this all the time, right? You know, should we be playing games in the middle of, I I mean, I know technically kind of towards the tail end of the pandemic, but are we even at that capacity? So I'm going to let Marcin take the lead here because Napoli and Juve were at an interesting crossroads when it comes to this. So why don't you go ahead and, and, you know, explain the situation Maybe give your two cents. Maybe Matt can give his two cents, and then I'll take the four cents and go get myself something nice. All right, <laughs> man. T- Tim, two for two with dad jokes. Two topics, two dad jokes. I feel all like the I, dad humor. I, I see me. a trend coming on today. <laughs> but yeah, for those that don't know, uh, Juve Napoli was uh, looks like quote unquote postponed, uh, delayed uh, for the decision of of the winner of the game or what's going to even happen with that game. Uh, but basically, the long story short is um, Napoli were, depending on who you believe, were um, not allowed to travel to Torino for the game, which it looks like we're giving a uh, a recommendation of not to travel, but weren't forced to not to travel based on the latest reports that I'm, I'm kind of seeing. And what ended up happening was Napoli didn't come to, to Torino to play against Juventus. Uh, Juve obviously showed up to the arena expecting to play a game as 
because they weren't giving any kind of other information that the game was postponed or, or canceled or anything like that. And Juve were essentially waiting until halftime, and then the ref called the game, which technically means it's a, it's a 3-0 win to Juve. Um, but yeah, the, the longer story issue was is that Napoli had two players test um, positive for COVID. Uh, I believe they've had negative tests on all the other players, but that was their kind of their reasoning was, um, hey, we have two players tested positive for COVID. We, we don't want to travel. We don't feel comfortable playing this game against Juve. Uh, Juve also had two staff members test positive. So it kind of both teams had uh, around the same kind of situation with positivities um, in terms of like the COVID tests within their camps. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's just going to be a hot debate. So now it's in um, a, a judge's kind of hands, his call to kind of determine what's going to happen with that. If the game's going to be replayed, if you've ever going to get a, uh, a three, no win, there's now new news that um, obviously Napoli broke protocol, had, like after the positive test, the players didn't quarantine and they were going out to restaurants. So um, Napoli, if they're found, I believe if, if they're breached that protocol, they get a point deduction. So, there's uh, never a dull week in Serie A, if you can kind of believe that. It's always something fun, uh, especially Juve Napoli, obviously the rivalry there. Um, so that's kind of what's going on in COVID and then and like COVID land in, in Serie A right now. But yeah, I mean, th- there's just a lot of uh, other teams that have had COVID imp- impacts. For example, Milan with Ibrahimovic. Um, Napoli, the week before they played Juve, had uh, played Genoa, who had, I believe, what is it, up to 22 people test positive in their mm-hmm. camp now. And Mattia Perin was already uh, tested positive. So there's there's a lot of um, issues going on with what's the proper protocol and should we play, be playing games? If not, do we just kind of like put those COVID positive players on an injury list? And and that's kind of like the big hot debate right now. And it's, it's just uh, an interesting topic right now with, with everything that's going on in not only world football, but the world is, are we still... Do we still have everything kind of figured out to be playing football games? And obviously, there's no fans in the arenas, which is a which is a good thing. But it, should we even be playing games, or or do we even have the right protocol to be um, to be even playing football right now? That's honestly the the main question. And I kind of want to kick that kind of back over to you guys and and get your kind of thoughts on everything that's going on with, uh, especially obviously Italian football right now and everything that's going on with uh, COVID in Italy. So uh, I want to kick it over to our esteemed guest, Matt, first for his thoughts on the whole situation. Um, I think the the situation was, to your point, just kind of classic Serie A, right? I think, you know, if if you're not familiar (laughs) with Serie A for those listening, you know, there's, we've seen so many kind of strange cases of just uh, you kind of scratch your head like this. This is actually a professional league, right? I think a couple of years ago there was something with Cagliari with like milk farmers. Like the players couldn't get to travel to their game because local milk farmers were having a sit-in at the at the actual training ground, so the players yeah. couldn't leave. Then you had the whole instance with uh, Tim's team, Roma, with not reporting the player on their roster or whatever, and mis misreporting the player on their roster, so being uh, giving a three-zero defeat. And then the guy joining Verona the day later or something like that, some crazy situation. Like, there's always something going on in Serie A. And sure enough, um, in probably the, the, the most marquee matchup of, and one of the more marquee matchups of the season, and definitely the one, that, the biggest one so far in Juve Napoli, um, to see something like this in, in this climate is tricky. I understand it. I understand the concern on both ends. I understand from it from Napoli's perspective because. You don't know how much of a lingering effect the interactions they had with Genoa can maybe carry over, right? So, hypothetically speaking, right, if let's say it takes X amount more days for those positive tests to show up, and we find out that more Napoli players tested positive due to the connections they had with Genoa, 
well, what does that leave for Juve? And then you, what does Juve win their next opponent they play, you know? So there's a lot of things to, to kind of consider in this. And I think it's ultimately kind of tough for me as a, a non-medical professional to speak on it and to kind of say what's the best course of action. Uh, I just think that it's it's classic Lega Serie A not sort of intervening and kind of putting their foot down to say, no, we're not playing the match, or yes, we're playing the match. If they said Napoli have enough players to play, which according to the, the test, they did have enough players. They had a goalkeeper, and I think they had 13 outfield players. So technically speaking, they would have enough players to field uh, the match against Juve. But by all means, but I understand it from Juve's perspective because they weren't advised against anything else. It was pretty much like, hey, can we play? Uh, yeah, you guys can play pretty much. So by all means. So I just think it was in any other league, I think you would have seen it handled much differently. Um, but in Serie A, they tend to kind of really struggle with handling racism. So I don't think they can definitely do anything better than what we've seen with this sort of case, which seems a little to me to be something that seems pretty obvious as to what should have been done. In my opinion, at least I would have stepped in and say, we're not playing the game. We'll wait a couple of days or we'll wait a week and we'll reschedule it or we'll find a way to make it up later in the season. But I guess we'll learn more once the judges you know, that, that Marson spoke on make their decision and kind of assess everything and ultimately come to a verdict. Yeah, Tim, uh, any, any thoughts on the whole Napoli-Juve case right now? Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, I've from the get-go of this whole thing, and by this whole thing, I mean this whole pandemic, I've made it really clear that as much as I love football, I just don't think that, you know, if you can't if you can't hold it to its capacity, then should it really even be being done right now? Because essentially what's happening is these clubs are, you know, they're holding training matches as professional matches. And kudos to the professionals for being able to, you know, compete at a high level while that's being done. But I just if you are going to be holding games during this situation, you can't be surprised when this happens. And when this happens, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound rude to, to, you know, to Napoli at any capacity, but, you know, if you have enough guys to play and this is something that everybody else is dealing with as well, you got to play the game. Once the league started, it started. And, and I understand the recommendation, but like, you know, everybody's playing with the same handicap, you know, it's, I understand that it's affecting teams differently, but it's something that could happen to any team. I have no quarrels with saying that uh, De Laurentiis, if you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, he would have done the same thing. I have no quarrels saying that. He has a keen for the dramatics, to say the least. You know, and uh, I'm not just saying that because he didn't give us Milik. Like I'm just, I'm like not that bitter about it. But you know, it's really what it boils down to. I think if the shoe was on the other foot, Napoli would have shown up and took him the three points. I think. It's something that, you know, if, if, you know, if they're saying you're clear to play, but these players aren't, well, that's something that once you started the season, you had to deal with as well. And you're part of the uh, football association and Mm -hmm. you got to do what you got to do. So I know it sounds cold, but, you know, if this was a concern that everybody had at the beginning, this never should have started in the first place. Yeah, I I think think you could even speak on to, uh, you you could even speak on, on Milan situation, right? Because they had. Um, their defender, Leo Duarte, had a positive test for COVID. Ibrahimovic, positive test for COVID. And they were traveling outside of Italy. They're traveling all over abroad in their Europa League yep. games. And they still had to go with their squad, right? They had a Colombo playing, which no no disrespect to him. But it's like, <laughs> you, you in, your, in those games where you need to win these matches to get to the Europa League group stage, and there's money involved, and there's a lot of significance and importance in these matches, 
they played. I mean, it just seems to me is that the league hasn't really got a grasp or a stronghold on what is the best course of action when players do test positive or members of staff test, po- test positive. Like, I'm just reading it now. Serie A president tested positive and he's asymptomatic. Like, okay, so what do we do? Like, there's these cases are coming up all over the place and there's going to be more. We all know there's going to be more. So I think there's got to be some sort of uh, ground rules established where it, it's from this. I think it maybe could take something like this where it says, if you have enough players who are not or have tested negative within a certain window of the game, you have to field the team or you run the risk of forfeiting or taking a, a result, a, a defeat. I think that's just how it has to be. If you want to, if the goal is to complete the season, of course, if the goal is, okay, well, if we get the sort of positive test, we're not playing the games for the rest of the season, then that's one thing. But if the goal is to finish the season and to play the entirety of the season, then there's, you have to kind of assume the risk that comes with it and just act accordingly in the best way you can. Yeah. And, and kind of to, to your point, I feel like it's, it, you just need to have some kind of consistency. Like for example, Napoli played Genoa who had 22 positive cases at this point and Mattia Perin d- didn't travel with the squad. So you, you knew that there was a risk. So they traveled. So they, they, they played Genoa and then, then they have positive cases of their own. It's like, oh, now all of a sudden, I don't, want, I don't feel comfortable traveling to Juve. Like, you just need that kind of consistency that, like, oh, like, what's the protocol? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. And, like, Agnelli did an interview. As soon as that game was called, he, he was like, hey, listen, we followed the protocol that the league gave us to a letter. Like, we did everything right by the league, and that's that's all we can do. And that's, and that's like, yeah, I, it may be coming from a Juve fan's perspective on, on mine right now, but he's exactly right. Juve followed the protocol to a perfect T. Like, if you if you look at the latest reports, Napoli weren't like forced to stay home. It was uh, they were they were giving a recommendation to not to travel, but they weren't forced and like kept out of airports like like it initially was reported. So they could have they could have come to Torino. They could have played the game if they really wanted to. But I feel like it came down to more like oh we don't have Jelinski, we don't have Insigne, we don't have our key players. Do we really want to be playing this match right now? You know. So I feel like there's some more back office stuff. But that's 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 a conversation for another time and another day. Look, I'll back you on that opinion. I like I said, if the shoe was on the other foot, I have no quarrels with saying that Napoli would have, you know, would have played that game out. It's, it's just the way that it would would have played, you know. So I before like we continue, would have. <laughs> before we continue too long on this subject, we did want to touch on one other, and this is the last real crucial point that we have to touch on: is top transfers of the window. We're going to do this one relatively quick. We're each just going to pick a team that. We think won the transfer window, and we're going to pick a team who we think flopped the transfer window. And uh, you know, we're going to try to keep our responses to a decent time. This is on on the fly decision that we're going to try to keep these responses short. Uh, but why don't we go ahead and we'll start with Marcin? Marcin, who is your team that won the window? Okay, so um, my team that won the window is kind of one that we mentioned before, and it is Everton. So. Everton, yeah, I, I have to hand it to Everton for the business that they did, just completely um, revamping the entire midfield of that squad. Bring in Ducure, who's that just physical presence, that that brute kind of um, kind of player in that midfield. Um, partnering up with Alan, who's that box They're to first box. place. Yeah, they are in first place. And pairing Ducure up with Alan, who's that like box to box midfielder, that kind of do it all kind of guy. And then having that creative number ten in Hamez, who I, I, a lot of—I mean, if you listen to our previous episodes, we kind of raved about him. Um, yeah, just like revamping that midfield and him being partnered up with Ancelotti again, you see the results and how good Hamez has been in the opening three games uh, of the season. And you just like like Tim just mentioned, you see the results that Everton kind of come out from. 
And yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what you see. Like Everton are top, like that's their transfer policy has clearly been doing the job. And uh, like, I'm, I'm super excited to kind of keep watching some more Everton games. Them, them and Leeds are definitely going to be my fun, uh, fun teams in the EPL to watch. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely excited to watch more of that, that midfield three. So um, just for that simple reason, Everton are, are my winners of the window so far. We'll, we'll start a little hashtag on our, maybe on our Instagram account where we'll do Marson's boys. And whenever they do well, they'll, uh, they'll get a shout. Uh, so who lost? Who lost the window for you? Um, so I, I feel like Barcelona are the team that kind of lost the window for me. Um, I don't really see them having any, I mean, key additions. <laughs> if, they kept messy. Uh, that's like the that's like a big point for the window. Like I know they they kept messy, but after after losing out the uh, La Liga title to Real Madrid and then kind of being uh, let's say quote unquote embarrassed basically by uh, Bayern in the Champions League. I was kind of expecting them not to like bust out some crazy, absolute, ridiculous moves, but they they needed to do something to to really like you know to to improve the squad. And I understand bringing back some players um, off loan, so like Coutinho came back and and that kind of stuff. But they didn't obviously really make any crazy moves in the market. I mean, yeah, they brought in Serginho Dest uh, to play right back, which was a great move. Um, they brought in a 20-year-old winger, Trincao, from, from Braga, from Liga Nos, for a, a substantial amount of money. And then they, they basically swapped Artur for Miralem Pjanic. And that was really the, the key moves that they really made, you know? There wasn't anything else that kind of... I, I just don't see any of those moves kind of taking Barca back to that, like, next level that they were a couple years ago when they were just steamrolling teams and just winning every trophy. I, I just... It's, I feel like this is a very vulnerable Barcelona and I just don't see, like, yeah, these, these moves were great for the future, like bringing in Dest and Tinkao. Um, but, yeah, Miralem Pjanic is already 30. He, you swapped him for a 24-year-old Arthur, who I, I think at this point a lot of people would say they're pretty close in ability. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just questionable moves from, from Barca's perspective in terms of the win-now mentality, especially with Messi only being here for another year. And were those the correct moves to, to show him, like, hey, we have a, a future built up for you to win right now? And, and do I really see that? Not, not really. I think Real Madrid are still the better side right now in La Liga. I think there's a ton of different different teams that are better suited to win the Champions League right now than Barcelona. So I just, I just don't really get the point of their uh, their moves in this, especially in this, like you mentioned, in this time where Messi's uh, got a year left on his contract and and he will most likely be leaving next summer. So we'll see. All right. So winners and losers from Marcin, we got them. So let's move on to. Our esteemed guest, as as Marcin has called Matt at this point. Uh, so Matt, who won the window for you this season? Um, there was several teams that stood out to me. I think Atalanta were one. I think I liked the moves they made. It was less about being flashy and more about getting practical additions to the roster by also retaining players, right? Keeping Golzins, uh, keeping Papu Gomez, keeping Duvan Zapata. Uh, they sold Castagna to Leicester City, got a pretty substantial fee in return. But, you know, getting guys like Christian Romero from Juve on loan with an option to buy, I don't think we've seen enough of him to kind of really gauge what type of player he can be. But I think in terms of getting opportunity, um, he will get plenty of that at Atalanta, and I think he'll really show what he's capable of. Um, Sam Lammers is a, a nice attacker for them as well that, that we already saw on the weekend looked really strong. Miran Chuck, I think 24 years old, um, I think from Locomotive, if I'm correct, um, for a pretty decent fee. So those three players are already immediately going to help Atalanta and keep that sort of 
project going. Plus, they sold well. They, they got the Kulusevsky money. Obviously, he's a fantastic player, but the fact that they get $35 million right in, that's pure profit. That's that's huge for them. It's the same thing with um, Amatriore going to uh, to Manchester United, which a move that will be finalized in January. Um, so I think Atalanta were one of the, one of my winners, but I think the overall winner, um, and this is me still kind of a little skeptical about the completeness of their market, but I think it's got to be Chelsea, right? I think the fact that they got Timo Werner, you got Hakim Ziyech, you got Ben Chilwell, you got Kai Havertz for over $100 million, Thiago Silva, they got Mendy, who isn't Kepa, so they're heading in the right direction there. Uh, I did, do think they needed another central defender. I think there's some sort of void there. It feels like they're kind of still slim in that regard. But overall, I think Chelsea were well-positioned with the market they had um, to take really big steps forward. Uh, if I'm going to talk about my, I guess, losers. I think it's got to be Manchester United. I think the disappointment of not getting Jadon Sancho when they had pretty much no competition for him for three months and they've been talking to Borussia Dortmund and they still couldn't manage to get that done. I think that's really disappointing. I mean, I think they're going to kick themselves when it comes around next summer with more competition and with more teams being able to spend, um, specifically Real Madrid, who I know we didn't touch too much on, but I thought they did a good job selling. I think if we're going to focus on the job that they did selling, getting rid of players with high wages and positioning themselves maybe to have a great um, summer window next next summer. Um, okay. And what else? I think, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, there's they, they could be spending quite a bit, so we'll have to wait and see what they do, but yeah, I think those are the teams, I guess, that kind of stood out to me. Um, I'd probably say Chelsea and Atalanta were my winners, and my losers were probably Manchester United, and I'd probably say Lazio. I, I just don't think that Lazio did enough for a team that finally gets into the Champions League, had such a solid year, managed to keep Milinkovic-Savic, keep all these players, and you're thinking, all right, if they're able to add to this squad, like, can they press on? It seems to me that they're going to take a step back, and they're not going to be um, the anti-Juve that they kind of looked like at some points last season. So I, I can go many different routes with this one. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, even teams like PSG didn't do enough, right? I think even to, even like Lyon in terms of selling players, like not selling Memphis to Pi when they had that money and they really needed it. Um, you know, those sorts of things. Like, I think, I know it was a kind of a strange market, so I can't really hit on ter- too many clubs. Like, you know, I Martian, you mentioned Barcelona. I just saw what their debts are. It's like $820 million, so they're really just in no position to spend on anyone. But I think the biggest focus for them was just getting out from underneath some big contracts. And listen, I'm, I'm probably going to lump in Juve there. I know people are going to look at it and say, um, you know, they maybe didn't get the left backs they needed. But I think overall, Juve had a strong market. They got younger, which was a big focus for them. Um, they swapped Pjanic for Arthur. I don't, I don't know what Barca's doing in that situation. I think Arthur's going to be a really good player for Juve. And... Um, Getting Chiesa, one of the more talented Italian internationals, who we haven't seen the fullest of him yet. So I think Atalanta, Chelsea, and Juve are probably my winners. And then I would say my losers are Manchester United, maybe PSG, and, you know, to your point, Barcelona and Lazio. Tim, what do you got? Uh, well, Matt just named every team under the sun, so I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> but if I had a pick, so I actually, I was a little torn between winners. And uh, my first obvious winner, I thought, uh, was Bayern Munich, because I think that a lot of times when we look for a good transfer window, we always look for quantity. Uh, I feel like a lot of times the media specifically will look for quantity because it's something cool to report on. And clubs also look for it because it's like, oh, check it out. Shirt sales. Like, we can do this. Um, 
But I thought Bayern Munich won their window uh, because they brought in, you know, they brought in some real talent. Uh, and despite all the real talent that they brought in, including Leroy Sané, their entire window uh, really cost them about 70 mil for the entire window, which is nuts considering how much Leroy Sané was, you know, touted for not too long ago. Um, but they, you know, they had a couple uh, smart buys as well. If you look at uh, Mark Rocca from Espanol, you know, young guy, 23 years yeah. old. Uh, they brought some experience in at right back with Saar. You know, and the uh, the ever interesting signing of uh, Chupa Motang just went from Stoke City to like, I'm going to be man. like. His yeah. agent, he's the winner. His, agent, his agent's the winner of the market, man. Damn. <laughs> So, so he, that's my obvious winner, but my less obvious winner and a team that I thought made some smart moves, uh, because obviously Bayern Munich are just far and away one of the best teams I think I've ever seen, uh, play the game right now. I, one of my not so obvious winners, I thought Wolves had a really interesting window. Um, I thought Wolves had an interesting window because they signed Fabio Silva from Porto. Uh, he's extremely promising at 18 years old. They signed Nelson Semedo, who... I know isn't you know doesn't have the best reputation right now, but I think he's a great outside back. But at the same time, again, just I'd look less for teams that sign big players and more for teams that sign in what they lack. And I felt last season Wolves really lacked defensively and with a little bit of squad depth. Once you got outside of their starting eleven, there wasn't really a lot there for them. So for me personally, I think Wolves had a really good window in the way that they built some real squad depth. I mean, they took. Uh, they took, you know, my go-to FIFA career mode signing outside back and uh, Rayan Atit Nouri uh, from uh, Agers in, uh, you know, in, in France. And they took also uh, Juvier from, uh, from Liverpool, the youth player there. So they had some really solid moves for some really inexpensive uh, signings uh, considering what they really were doing. So as far as winners go, I constitute winners by who really impro- improved their squad the most. Uh, and yeah, and I, and I constitute that as Byron and you know and Wolves uh, at different capacities. So those are my winners. Your losers. I was waiting for it. So I'm happy Matt asked me because I think Chelsea are losers for this. Wow. So yeah. if this constitutes as a hot take. Hot okay, take. Just, to the just follow, just, Wow. Just very hot take considering the whole football community has absolutely lost their noggins over this transfer window. Uh, justifiably for a lot of players. Uh, however, I think that look at two. I think you look at Kai and you look at Werner, and I think that they're undoubtedly talents. Uh, but when you spend that kind, that much money, you're looking for success in the short term. And I just don't know if you know if you look at the defensive. I mean, they signed uh, Sar as well, but I believe they loaned him out to Porto, Porto like immediately yeah. after. Uh, and you look at the goalkeeping situation. Uh, where I understand that you know they brought a new keeper in and that's great, uh, but I think the goalkeeper is just kind of a hot seat right now for them, and I don't think I think it's going to take Thiago Silva a little bit of time to catch up to the pace at the EPL. I understand he's an extremely skilled defender. I'm not trying to you know poo-poo him at all. I'm really just trying to uh, just be realistic with it. Where you know starting your career with a with a pretty uh, a simple unforced error leading to uh, you know a, a pretty bad goal to concede against a pretty poor side. It's not the best way to get your career off the mark. Um, but I just think that defensively, they're still 
they're still struggling defensively because I just don't think Frank Lampard uh, has worked out defensively how they're supposed to look. I think as a player, he's always gone forward and he's always been an excellent midfielder, smart guy, you know, you know, good at that capacity, reads the game really well. But I still think defensively, you know, even if you look at like Ben Chilwell, yeah, absolutely. He's a great left back, but I think he's one of those left backs that's better going forward than he is defending. And I think he's still got to learn that side uh, a little bit more. He's still relatively young. I don't think he's really, what is he like early to mid twenties? Like he's not, he's got time. It's not like that. So I really, again, I think it's constituting the pressure that Chelsea have put on themselves by spending all this money. Uh, I understand, you know, they, they were at a plus anyway, so it isn't even like they're really, you know, severely stressed financially now. I just think that with all the signings that they made, they just seem a little shaky for a team. I still think that those youth players that they were relying on last season are still saving them more often than not. When you look at Mount and Abraham, I still think that they're carrying a lot of the weight in that team. Uh, so, you know, for me, I just I just don't think for the amount of money that was spent and for the positions that they needed, I just don't know if necessarily all those signings were necessary. You know, I know that sounds a little weird to say that way, but I just don't know if all those signings were necessary. You know, I, I just think that if they had signed, you know, and facilitated a couple of experienced players with the youth that they had coming through, because Mason Mountain had a good, t- good campaign, Tammy Abraham went fit, was still firing goals in. So I just don't think that, uh, you know, all that spending was necessary. And that's why I think they're not winners of this market. I think long term, they might be losers of the market because, I don't think one of one of them is not going to settle. It's either going to be Kai or Werner. And from what I've seen recently, Kai is not settling in well at Chelsea. I know he has not had a lot of time with the team, but I think he's struggling to find his role. Whereas at Bayern Leverkusen, he was the main man the whole time. Find the ball, get it to him. Just don't think it's the same light at Chelsea for him. And I think that's where he's going to struggle a little bit. Everton 2021 uh, EPL champs. At, they're in first place. Don't mm-hmm. say, never say never. So... Uh, last topic, because we're severely over time of what I thought we were going to be doing here. Uh, shout out to shout out to Matt for always bringing the conversations in. Uh, so uh, last topic here we have is, and this was something that Marson brought up, and we always like to have a little bit of boot talk uh, inside the podcast is, have Nike released too many new boots too quickly for star athletes? Uh, we can point the finger at the fact that they just dro- dropped the uh, MDS3, uh, which uh, it's only what been like a month or so since the Mbappe's drop, and we also have signature colorways popping all over the place for Sancho, uh, etc. So, are they dropping too many colorways at the same time? Is that a problem for them? How do we feel about it? Yes, yeah, so, Marson, take the lead on this one. Yeah, so I'm the one who brought up this topic just because I, I, I find it very curious that like Mbappe gets his own signature colorway at the, what was it, beginning of August, like late July, something along those lines, it dropped. And then about, what, six weeks later, he has, he's one of the MDS3, like, like athletes that is supposed to wear those boots. So he, he wears his own signature colorway for, what, like two matches for, like, six weeks, and then he's already out of it. Um, so yeah, I, I just find it a little bit weird. Like, I understand that, like, Nike want to sell, like, their newest line, and, and there's colorways popping up left and right. But I feel like when it comes to, like, signature athletes, I feel... 
this is just my personal opinion. I feel like if they have a signature boot, they should wear that signature boot for a lo like a longer ex like a period of time. You know, like when Ronaldo got the safaris, he wore the safaris for what like three, four games, and then he was out of them. I feel like that like in those instances, you should as a signature or like colorway for you as an athlete, you wear it for like two, three months, and then you can you know switch to the next silo or like to the latest colorway that Nike asked you to. Same thing with like Sancho, wear your colorway until like November or something along those lines. And then if Nike have a new colorway at that point, switch into those. Mbappe, he wore his 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 pink berries for like one foot, two games. And then he, he already has to switch to the MDSs. Like I feel like Nike are just releasing these like signature colorways that they have multiple athletes into too quickly. And you don't really get a chance to see the boot. Like I get it from their perspective. I guess you're trying to like put out money and like these these things have been kind of put into like production, like from what the beginning of the year. Let's let's be honest, but like you want to have your signature athlete wear their signature colorway because that's what's gonna like drum up the hype because it's it's meant for them. It's it's more personable. Like that that's the whole point of a signature colorway. It's supposed to be tailored for that athlete, uh, especially with like the last two colorways with Mbappe's pink berry. It's like a remake. Like I bought them. Like they were one of my favorite boots growing up when with the original ones. Like I wanted him to see him wear those, especially considering the story that. Mbappe had to go along with those boots and same thing with the safaris for Ronaldo it's such an amazing colorway it's such an iconic colorway and like I would have liked to see him more in those boots as well so I feel like they're I feel like that for those signature ones they need to dial it back just a, just a little bit let them wear just a little bit before you draw a new one uh, maybe space it out a bit more uh, but that's that's just just my feedback if it's Nike Nike execs if you're listening I love your products space them out a little bit more <laughs> Matt any take any uh, any input on this one um, you you guys know much more about boots and the whole culture than I do, but I, I think the, the probably the one question I want to maybe kind of quickly throw at you guys is in comparison to I guess other Nike athletes or um, just athletes in general who have their own line or their own boot or their own shoe or whatever. Like in comparison to those sports, so I'm obviously the basketball games are on and we're kind of focused on other sports at this moment in time. Like how often does LeBron get a new colorway? For his shoe, right? I know he has like a signature shoe, and he's the big athlete for Nike. For Nike, but how often, in comparison, does he get a new colorway for his signature shoe? In comparison to maybe like a Ronaldo, for instance, is he wearing his shoe for the whole season? Is he wearing it for half the season? Does he have a Christmas exclusive colorway? Like, do you guys know anything about that? Because I think that's going to be uh, something that you know is probably driving the, the mass production of these different colorways. If there is the demand for it. And it's kind of uh, more of a Nike thing versus just being an athlete thing where we're seeing it with one game or two games and then, okay, this is going to get thrown into the back of the closet and we're going to bring something else out. So do you guys have anything on that front? Yeah, I would, I would throw my two cents in here. And this is actually kind of what my point was lead, what my point was going to lead up to anyway. So this really works out is that uh, we used to have the Nike ID option, right? Well, we still do, but it's limited down to maybe one or two other models right now, right? Uh, the, in the GT and the Vapor, uh, or rather the Mercurial. But, you know, the whole point I think that they're making is that I think Nike's trying to step away from the ID, and I think they're trying to step into getting consumers to buy the same mass-produced product because those IDs take a lot of effort for them to make. And just touching on the subject of those of those. You know, basketball sneakers versus, you know, uh, football player sneakers, uh, or rather football boots. You know, if you look at the difference in it, LeBron does have his own line, right? You know, you'll see like the LeBron 12s, for example, or something along those lines. But yeah, they're hype and you buy them and then you never touch them again. 
uh, it's a little different for football players, right? Because when you buy a pair of boots, uh, you want to use them very frequently unless you're a boot head, uh, you know, but at the same capacity, it's very different because Ronaldo, yes, is wearing his signature colorway, but those aren't Ronaldo boots, right? Those are mercurial boots with a Ronaldo colorway on them. And that's like a really big distinction. So I mm -hmm. actually think that the drive in all these releases is to drive consumerism to keep them with Nike because uh, I don't think it's going to be too far-fetched to imagine that Neymar is going to have his own... I've asked that about that, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it's too far-fetched to imagine that Neymar is going to have his own silo uh, named after him. So instead of him wearing the Kings or Mercurials, he's going to be wearing the Neymar ones, for example. You right. Know, the, you know, or the NJR ones or something. You know, it's not, like they're going to figure out some way to market that because once they do that, his whole fan base is locked into that, right? So I, I believe that right now, they're just trying to stay in front of competition, they being Nike, and just releasing colorway after colorway after colorway because they want you hooked on this specific boot, right? Because I don't buy a Mercurio for a year or two. Maybe I'll try out the Puma Ultra, and now I'm now I'm on that boot, right? I see Marcelo Brozovic wearing Ultras. Maybe I want to give Ultras a try because Nike hasn't come out with the colorway in a little bit. Uh, you know, so I definitely think it's down to consumerism and bringing up the point of the basketball, you know, sneakers versus football boots. I think it's heading in that trajectory where the hype and the clout is going to dictate who buys what as opposed to it being practical because nobody talks about the fact that football boots are meant to be practical first and then a fashion mm -hmm. state second. And it's kind of superseded the other way, which is really nuts because imagine a baseball player wearing, you know, a, a mitt that isn't exactly suitable for their position or for how they like it, but it's a cool color. So they'll wear it and they'll get clout for it. You know, so it's just, I don't think people realize that, yes, you know, consumerism stay in front of everybody, but it needs to be practical first. And I we're seeing a lot of boot brands fall away from that. And I think that's not going to help the consumer in the long run. Yeah, some some hot takes tonight on Top Ends Talk. Hot takes uh, on Top Ends Talk. Yeah, hot takes on Top Ends Talk. And I think that's the last topic that we were uh, going to chat about tonight. And I think that'll conclude uh, another epi of Top Ends Talk. Tim, I'm going to let you do your uh, thank yous and outros first, like always. Okay, because, yeah, we do the know, thing. That's that's our thing, right? You know, I got to do the informal one before Marcin does the formal one. It's a little appetizer before the main. So that's what that's what we do here. So first of all, uh, thank you, Matt, for being on our podcast in the first place thank again. You guys. Uh, so, you know, of course, uh, why don't you give them just, you know, where to catch you on Twitter again? Sure. Guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Um, got some great articles coming out. I'm going to be featured in the next Sky to Football magazine. So make sure you guys go check that out. And all that information is on my Twitter. There you go. Absolutely. And uh, actually, if you can do me a favor, just give your podcast a shout out as well, because sure. we love directing people to good work. And that is the epitome of good work. Sure. So you guys uh, make sure to check us out uh, at State of Play Pod. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, pretty much wherever podcasts can be listened to. Uh, we just released our 60th episode today, actually, which pretty much Woo. tackles most of the transfer market. So we cover the top five leagues plus Major League Soccer. But you guys can go check out our catalog. We've had some great guests, uh, Matteo Benetti from ESPN. We've had Brian Dunseth, who covers um, MLS soccer, former uh, U.S. men's national team player. So uh, we're, we're, we're building our guest list. And if you guys have any recommendations, give us a shout out and we'll, we'll make sure uh, we do our best to make it happen. Marson, do you want to shout out Live Breathe Football or 
do you want me to do it? Because you're the one wearing the shirt right now. So yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it in my uh, in my formal outro. Of course, of course. And for those who don't know, live, breathe football is synonymous with Marson. I'm not. I'm actually very surprised he does not have a tattoo on his body at this point. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, just actually the only other shout out I wanted to give. Uh, was to uh, Post and Pints is uh, a couple friends of ours that cover MLS topics. And uh, that is a great podcast to follow as well. They're very far ahead episode wise. Uh, They're a great group of guys and they're very passionate uh, about literally the one league that I don't think we cover at all. So definitely (laughs) if you are interested in anything MLS related, uh, definitely worth uh, checking them out. Uh, And that's really my shout outs for this episode. I don't have a lot going on. Uh, but shout out to Marson for always dealing and being patient with me. So uh, <laughs> on to you for the formal outro, my friend. Yeah. So uh, as always, thank you first first and foremost to Matt for jumping on. I know this was very last minute of us and we did go over time, but a little bit. Thanks to Tim. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so thank you, Matt. Uh, so obviously for hanging out with us for a little bit. Uh, obviously, you could follow us on uh, Instagram at Top Bins Talk or at, on Twitter at Top Bins Talk underscore. Uh, you can follow me personally at PL Juventino on Twitter. Uh, I'm always welcome to chat with everybody about football or anything uh, footy related, whether it's boots or anything like that. And of course, I always at the end of my episode, I do like to give a shout out to Live Breathe Football, uh, awesome brand, making uh, great quality gear and clothing. They did not make Tim's mug that he's showing us right now. Uh, but they do make awesome football gear. Uh, one of the shirts I'm wearing, so check them out. Uh, they're they're posted in um, in my Twitter page. So if you ever want to check out their catalog, they have some cool uh, out clothing and gear and masks and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, so always a shout out to them. But yeah, thank you guys, of course, for listening in for another episode. Um, and until the next one, I'm out. Peace. See you later.